Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Our text this morning is perhaps uh, one of the more familiar sections of Jesus' teaching. Perhaps you've heard these verses before. Perhaps you've heard these verses recently. Because again, these are the sorts of things we are accustomed to Jesus saying. Our goal this morning, I think, is to not only make sense of the text, but to understand where this text falls in the teachings of Jesus being brought to us from John. So let's say a few introductory things as we jump into our sermon this morning. First, our chapter, John 15, is a part of what many people refer to as the farewell discourse of Jesus. The farewell discourse. That's a phrase that tries to put together what's going on beginning in chapter 13 and sort of ending around chapter 17. In these chapters, chapters 13 through 17, the farewell discourse, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He knows that he's leaving. He knows that they're going to have a lot of questions. He knows the challenges that are coming their way. He, he knows everything. And so he begins to methodically prepare them for his death. And this is what he's essentially telling them. I am departing. The Spirit is arriving. You are to go about abiding. I am departing. The Spirit is arriving. And you are to be abiding. So Jesus, as he's sharing these thoughts in these chapters, is preparing and helping piece together all that the disciples have seen up to this point. These are rich chapters, John chapter 13 through 17. In fact, our text this morning makes very little sense if we don't have some of the background that Jesus has been saying and doing beginning in chapter 13. So, for example, in John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, a text that we'll come back to in just a little bit. And in that text, he gives his disciples an example of humble service. And also in John chapter 13, Jesus announces the devastating news that one of the 12 is going to betray him. In John chapter 14, or pardon me, John chapter 13, we also have the text that we'll hear about when we get to Holy Week, around Easter, the Maundy Thursday text, where Jesus gives the commandment to love one another as he has loved us. It's in John chapter 14 where Jesus makes the shocking declaration, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Dear friend, if you are here today without Christ, you need to take Jesus at his word. No one, including you, can be reconciled to God without Jesus, for he is the mediator between God and man. And this is good news for you, for you have the scars to prove that your work salvation isn't working out too well. All of the things you're trying to do to get the satisfaction and peace your soul craves, just isn't measuring up. In fact, you know that, that even on your best day, those best things about you don't quite measure up. And your conscience cannot bear the weight of the shame and guilt which arises when you don't measure up. 
The liberating news of the gospel is that Jesus knows this about you. He knows you don't measure up, which is why he's offering to reconcile you to God by his sacrifice. It's in this section that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He comforts his frightened disciples that he has overcome the world. Perhaps you need to be reminded of that this morning. If there are storm clouds on the horizon of your life, if the world is is pummeling you a good one, you need to be reminded this morning, Jesus has overcome the world. And as I'm sure you are aware, if you fast forward through John, we have John 17, where the entirety of the chapter is Jesus praying for his people. And in the middle of all of that, we have John 15 our text this morning. And as I said, I don't think our text will make a whole lot of sense if we don't pull some of those pieces together. In a sense, we would do it a disservice if we don't understand the the imagery that's going on prior to our text and what will even take place after our text. For example, as we heard just a moment ago when the text was read to us, and as we'll unpack in just a moment, Jesus paints a picture of a vine trimmed by its gardener or the vine dresser. And this expert gardener knows how to prune in such a way that the branches will bear good fruit. And he also knows how to prune in such a way that dead branches are removed and cast away. Jesus applies this imagery, of course, to us. And we need to make sure we see it. We need to see that if we don't remain vitally attached to Jesus Christ as his disciples, we will not bear the fruit that is born of love and obedience. So hear what Jesus says in John chapter 14. This is John 14 verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. That's John 14, 23. And Jesus essentially repeats that in our text today when he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. So here is our main point for today. If you're a note taker, perhaps you'll jot this down. In order to sustain a fruitful spiritual life, believers must remain intimately attached to Jesus. In order for us to sustain and maintain a fruitful spiritual life, believers must remain intimately attached to Jesus. And with the Lord's help, I think we'll see that clearly in our text this morning. There are a number of ways to go about addressing these 11 verses and, and actually a few that weren't read that we'll pull in in just a moment. But what I simply want to do this morning is ask this text three questions. And as we ask these questions, we'll dig around for the answers in John 15, maybe a few other places. And at the end, I hope we can follow up with some applications. So we're going to ask three questions and do a bit of application in the end. So here's our first question. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? What does it mean for us to abide in Jesus? Jesus. Listen to verse 4 again. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you 
unless you abide in me. Well, we know this. This word abide, the Greek word behind it, is not an obscure word that's rarely used in the Bible. In fact, it's all over the place. In the New Testament alone, it's well, used well over 100 times. The Apostle John really loves this word. He uses it more than anyone. Just over 40 times in the Gospel of John alone. Well over 20 times it's used in the epistles that John writes. Paul uses it in Romans 9, verse 11, when he talks about how the immutability of God or the unchangeableness of God and how his purposes will, listen, stand forever. They will abide forever. We've already seen this word used in 1 Peter, in our 1 Peter series. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter uses this word to describe how the word of God is both living and abiding. It's effective. It's remaining. It will endure. It will last forever. When you get to 1 John and you read how John pieces together that letter, he uses the word frequently. Listen to some of these selections. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Jesus or known Jesus. John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in Jesus and he in us. Because he has given to us his spirit. And the lastly, 1 John 4 verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So if we put it all together, if you put all of these texts together, John's usage in the gospel of John, what he says in the epistles, Paul's usage, Peter's usage. When we put it all together, we can say for certain this. To abide means to remain. It means to persist, to continue in, to dwell in, to endure, to stand. We can say this for certain. To abide in Jesus must first mean you are a Christian. To abide in Jesus must first mean, first and foremost, that you are a Christian. You must have come to a point in your life where you've turned away from yourself and your sinfulness, and you've looked to Jesus as your Savior and your King. Those who have believed in Christ by faith and then with repentance, as we come to him in this way, we abide in him. We are united to him. And without that connection, without this connection of abiding, there is no life in us. There's no fruit, and frankly, there's no hope. We must understand, however, that these verses are not teaching us that we abide in order to be saved. Rather, we abide because we have been saved. Abiding is the evidence of true salvation. It is a grace, if you will, of perseverance, continuing on in this Christian thing called life. It means that we are not only Christians to abide in Jesus. It means that as we abide in him, we are empowered through him. To abide in Jesus means that we are given, given life-empowering power as we face our days. The branches are intimately dependent on the vine for a fruit-producing life. 
Jesus emphasizes this twice. And it's sort of summed up in this phrase. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Nothing that is produced in a believer's life happens apart from spiritual dependence on him. No fruit, no success, no growth, no change, no maturity can happen in your life or mine apart from the life-giving power of being connected, of abiding in Jesus. Christianity starts with Jesus, and it is empowered by a connection to Jesus. So here's our question again. What does it mean to abide in this text? It means to reside in Christ. To abide in him means to remain in him, to take refuge in him. It means to abide in his love, as we're going to see even more in just a moment. It means to continue in his words, as we're going to see in just a moment. So dear friend, we can just ask this question before we move on. How's it going for you these days? How's it going for you, week by week, in the life that often throws you curveballs, that often gives you the unexpected? How is your remaining going? How is the abiding going in your life? By the way, this this question I'm asking is not to uh, make you feel shame. It's not to make you feel guilt. It's to remind you of where your hope is. Your hope is your connection to Jesus. And dear friends, we often need to ask ourselves again and again and again, is what I'm seeing in my life and abiding in Jesus? We'll get to, in just a moment, how we can get some clear answers on that one as well. So what does it mean to abide? It means to be connected to, be remaining in Jesus. So here's our second question this morning. How do we go about doing this? (laughs) Right? That's that's the logical question. If that's what abiding is, well, how do I go about abiding in Jesus? What what do I do? What, What do I need to look for in my own life? How do I apply this to my life, so to speak? Well, before Jesus gives us a lot of answers to that question, he actually tells us what it means not to abide in him, right? That's verse 6. Look, look there again if you have your Bible open. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. I think if we're not careful here, we, we could make a mistake interpreting this verse. You, you could read this and say, boy, if I'm abiding in Jesus, boy, if I'm not measuring up, he, he's just going to toss me into the burn pile. But is that what Jesus is teaching here? Is Jesus teaching in some way that you can lose your salvation in some way? Well, I don't think so at all, actually. Uh, if we could go to different places that that John has already told us about in his own gospel. And I would just go to John 10, for example, where Jesus says very clearly, I give my children eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Jesus is carefully, if you will, bending over backwards to affirm that those who are his are indeed his, and he protects them, and no one can overcome the security of his protection. 
I think what Jesus is doing in verse 6 makes sense because of what he says in verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus tells these disciples, you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. In Leon Morris's commentary on John, he says that verse 3 is a verse, or this statement to the disciples is a verse of encouragement from Jesus to his disciples. I think that verse, verse 3, you are already clean, only makes sense if we remember what took place back in chapter 13. Do you remember that whole foot washing incident? I'll read it to you. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Listen carefully. But not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So go to chapter 15, you are clean, Judas is now gone, you are clean, Judas was not clean, he looked clean, for a few years there, he looked clean, he looked to be a part of the group, he knew the secret handshake, so to speak, he was there, he was with them, but he turned out to be not clean, and Jesus is giving us in John 15, a visual of how God goes about removing the unclean from the clean. I think what Jesus is saying to us in John 15, verse 3, what he is reminding us of is that there are times where we see that someone's profession of faith doesn't have a corresponding possession of faith. To say that a different way, it's one thing to profess all sorts of good things about Jesus. It's another thing to possess a faith in him, which is a gift of God, and your profession is rooted in what he is doing internally within you. Or to say it a different way, to say it in John's way, the abiding that is going on in us is a work of God and our connectivity to God keeps us remaining in the vine. Otherwise, in his due course, the Lord removes those. He removes those branches that do not bear the fruit of genuineness. Friends, we need to hear this warning. If, if anyone is here today hiding behind religious activity, religious slogan, Sunday school answers, certificates on the wall, you might want to take heed to Jesus' word that an uncovering looms before you. He knows who are his. And we must make sure we are clean that we have come to faith in Christ and we have had our sins forgiven. You can fool a lot of people. It's really not hard to learn a lot of information, to have an intellectual response to Jesus, salvation, churchy things. It's a whole other thing to be living that out in word and deed. Perhaps you have recognized in your own life, maybe you're here today and you recognized you perhaps have recognized it doesn't, maybe it doesn't seem like I'm genuinely a Christian. I, I was a pastor in a previous life, and I remember numerous times speaking to, to people who are really struggling with these sorts of issues. And there are a number of ways, 
pastorally you respond to that. But one sometimes, every once in a while, some of those cases, you just have to remind people, he is the vine, we are the branches. If we abide in him as he abides in us, we will see the fruit of genuine believers in our lives. And I hope you're looking for that in your own life. Well, how do we look? How, I mean, how, do, we, how do we abide in Jesus? That's our question, right? Well, Jesus tells us, look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my word, listen, abides in you. I think Paul echoes this in Colossians 3, verse 16, where he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think that's sort of the, uh, a parallel in Ephesians 5, where Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit. This filling, this dwelling on the Word is what Jesus is after here. So come in close, as Josh likes to say sometimes. I love that phrase. Abiding in Christ means allowing His Word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. Say that again. At the very least, What does it mean to abide in Jesus? It means that we allow his word to fill our minds, to transform and direct our will, and to transform our affections, our loves. Our relationship, as Sinclair Ferguson says about this text, our relationship to Christ is intimately connected to what we do with our Bibles. Your connectivity to Jesus And what you do with his living word are are inseparable. And by the way, Jesus has already said this. Back in John chapter 8, Jesus says it this way in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You want to be a true disciple of Jesus? There is an abiding in his word. Look again at verse 10 of John 15. If you have your Bibles open. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So to abide in Jesus means to keep his commandments, and to keep his commandments means that we love God with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. By the way, if we would have kept reading in John 15, look there in verse 12. Let's read a few extra verses that go along with our text. This is my commandment. So back up in 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So down to 15, or 12 rather, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you. I've appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Catch that. You're not just abiding. The fruit you're producing is abiding. So that whenever or whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you will love one another. So I think we can sort of put it together this way. To abide is to bring the liberating and life-giving power of Jesus into every realm of our lives. And we do that 
through our connection to his word and by obeying his commands to love God and love others. There is no such thing as spiritual compartmentalization with Jesus. You can't give him three quarters of your life or just one day out of the week. This is an all-consuming, Jesus, I'm yours, I am abiding, and I'm abiding through your word. Abiding in Jesus means that everything about you has been radically changed and radically offered by you. You're giving it all to him. So how you think, what you love, what your purpose is in this life, where you go, how you serve others, what you will do, what you won't do, the things that bring you happiness. Abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. To abide in Jesus means that we are following his commands, which are good for us, good for others, and they bring glory to God. And this leads to our third question, and all of these are are sort of overlapping, right? What does it mean to abide? How do we abide in Jesus? We're connected to his word. We're obeying his commands. Thirdly, What are the effects of abiding in Jesus? What what are we going to see in our lives as we're doing the following of Jesus' commands? What are we going to see? Well, the vine imagery helps us here, doesn't it? Of course, this has all sorts of Old Testament background to it. The shadows of all of this are there. Psalm 80, Isaiah 5. In other words, Israel was, if you will, a broken, a sick vine. But Jesus is the true vine. In Carson's commentary on John, he says this, and I quote him, Whenever historic Israel is referred to under this figure of of the vine, it is the vine's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasized, along with the corresponding threat of God's judgment on the nation. Israel, the imagery there, is now brought into Jesus is bringing this to us for us to see essentially he's the new Israel. We are connected to him and our connection to him produces something. Part of the father's vine dresser role is to prune the vine. In fact, did you see it in this text that the father is active? He's always active. The pruning shears are in his hands. For those limbs that produce nothing, they're cut off. And those limbs or those branches that are producing are pruned for more production, for more fruit. Vine dressers trim branches so that they'll produce more fruit. And Jesus is doing that right now, or God is doing that right now in your life. And it cuts away the false branches as well. So in one word, the answer to our question, what are the effects? The effects is fruit. Fruitfulness. And it would be right, I think, at this point, for your mind to think of the the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. I think it's right for your mind to go there, but we can actually say right here in this text and pull out a number of things that will be seen in your life as fruitfulness of abiding in Jesus. Verse 5, you'll bear much fruit. Verse 6, You'll give evidence of true conversion. Verse 7, 
you can receive answers to your prayers. I take that to mean that as the word of God, as the word of Christ dwells so intimately, as it flows through the veins of our abiding in him, we will be so filled with the spirit that we can speak to Jesus, pray in a way that is so consistent with God's will. We're actually praying his words to him in many ways. He is answering our prayers. By the way, he repeats that in that other section we read, didn't he? Another fruit we're going to see, verse 8, you will glorify God in your abiding and fruit producing. That's verse 8. Verse 9, you will be affirmed by God's love. Verse 11, you will love what God loves. And don't forget this big word called joy. You will sense and receive not just this abstract thing called joy, but the very joy of Jesus. Jesus is saying, my joy is yours as you abide in my word. But let's be clear. Our fruit bearing is inextricably tied to the vine dresser's activity. He points out that there are no exceptions. All who are genuine will bear fruit, and the fruit producers are under the precise hands of the vine dresser. True believers will bear fruit, and the vine dresser is not done with you yet. Every every Christian in this room has room to grow. We have areas of our lives that need to be renewed by the Spirit. We have other areas that need to be cut away. We have other areas that need to be transformed by godly discipline. The author of Hebrews gets into this. The father in his vine dressing role will sometimes bring us under discipline as a father will to demonstrate his love. The father who began a good work in you will complete it. And his completion of that work is not to be passive with you, not to push you away in the corner, I'll see you in heaven one day, but to be intimately, actively continually involved in your life because you are a reflection of his son. His work in us is to purge us, purify us, cleanse us, renew us, recreate us. And he does this often. Sometimes he does it through friends who are close enough to us to come in close and say, brother, I'm worried about this or that. Sometimes it's through a church that has to say, Friend, we we aren't seeing the fruits of the Spirit. We aren't seeing the fruits of genuine salvation. Sometimes, in fact, it could just be demonstrated in numerous ways how the Father goes about doing this. And you have noticed, by the way, that God often uses people to do his work, right? (laughs) God often uses people, pastors, churches, your spouse, your children, your neighbor, many, many people to do his work. In your life, pruning places the focus on God's glory, doesn't it? I think that's what verse 8 is about. If, If you have your Bible open still, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's read it again. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When he prunes us, brothers and sisters, we become better fruit bearers, glorifying the Father who has brought about our redemption. 
So what does it mean to abide, to be connected, to remain in, to remain steadfast? How do we go about abiding in Jesus? Well, he tells us we keep his word. We follow his commandments. What are the effects of all of this? Well, the Father is still working on us, thanks be to God. He's still working on us. I was trying to think of of the different ways we could sort of bring this home and apply this to our lives. And in order for that not to be really stale and abstract even in in my preparation for that, I, I began thinking of things that I've been my own self thinking through. I don't often plug books uh, because I don't receive any money or anything like that for them, and I don't want you to feel any sort of pressure. But I do want to plug a book that I, I think is incredibly helpful. Um, and it's Michael Horton's 2014 book entitled Ordinary. It's, I looked yesterday. It's less than $14 on Amazon. What, what Horton is doing in, in that book is a wonderful thing for all of us who, when we hear Abide in Jesus... Our minds often start thinking how we Western Christians begin to think. And I'll explain what I mean by that. When you and I hear the language of abiding and fruitfulness, a lot of us might be inclined to think of what is the next big thing I can add to my life? What's the next big thing I need to do? What's the next big Christian accessory I can add on to all the other Christian accessories I might have? In the hyper-busyness of our lives, we are inclined to add more and more things. Have you noticed that? It's sort of our default posture, I think. What can I add to my daily spiritual life to sort of give me a jolt out of the ordinariness of daily life and launch me into something extraordinary, maybe something even spiritually life-changing or maybe even something radical? That sort of thinking is, in my opinion, our knee-jerk reaction when we hear texts like this sometimes. We Western Christians love experiences, and we love to keep score. Everyone gets a trophy these days, and that's at least partly because we want to be awesome. We want to be epic. We want to stand out. Horton is a top-rate scholar. He knows how to talk to scholars. He knows how to talk to your everyday Christian, and he does it really, really well. And in this book, his audience is everyone, everyone who claims to be a Christian. And what he does in this book, I think, is he helps us think through this sort of posture carefully. He confronts this tendency we have to seek the radical, to seek the extraordinary, In fact, he says that the word ordinary has become one of the loneliest words in our existence these days. I mean, after all, how many of you will put a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at the local elementary school? Who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, married to an ordinary spouse, living in an ordinary neighborhood, going to an ordinary church, and has ordinary friends and an ordinary job? Our lives have to count. We have to leave our mark. We have to make a difference. And all of those things have to be managed, measured, maintained. We have to live up to our Facebook profile. It's one of the newer versions, as Horton says. It's one of the newer versions of salvation by works. And he says it this way, and I want to quote him. Like every other area of our life, 
we have come to believe that growth in Christ, so it's very much what we've just been talking about. I'm coming back to Horton. We have come to believe that growth in Christ as individuals or as churches can and should be programmed to generate predictable outcomes that are unrealistic and are not even justified biblically. We want big results sooner rather than later. And we've forgotten that God showers his extraordinary gifts through ordinary means of grace. He loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers. He sends us out into the world to love and serve others in ordinary callings. What's my point in bringing this up at the tail end of this message? Friends, if you and I are not careful, this sort of I want the next big thing version of Christianity will obscure the ordinariness of your life and the everyday journey of abiding in Jesus. You see, you may be one of those stay-at-home moms in our church, and your days are filled not with the extraordinary things. Your days are not filled with the next big thing type of existence. Rather, your daily life is filled with changing diapers and nurturing infants, and on some days, just keeping everybody alive in your own home. And somehow you find the energy to, to wake up the next day and do it all over again. You see, for those of you stay-at-home moms and in that particular journey of your life, the fruitfulness of your abiding in Jesus may best be seen in your daily embrace of the joy that is yours in Jesus. So when you change those diapers and you wipe snotty noses and as you prepare meals for your family, you may, do, may, you may be seeing far more fruitfulness than you'll ever see with another bumper sticker, t-shirt, or something else that the world might praise you for. Those daily, ordinary things are the fertile soil for you to abide in Christ. God is not looking for you to change the world. You stay-at-home moms. He's looking for you to abide. He's looking for you to be faithful. He's looking for you to rest in him as you follow the commands of Jesus. And the fruit will be there. And it will be abundant. You will glorify your father as, you, as he enriches others through your service. Or for those of you in the daily grind of employment... That is the sort of employment you get paid for. You will awake tomorrow morning, Lord willing, and you'll hurry off to your job and you will perhaps answer to someone and your average work week is task driven. It's usually predictable and sometimes it's just downright routine because in many cases you see the same sort of people every week. You do the same sort of task every week. You go to the same sorts of places every week. And the fruitfulness of your abiding in Christ may be seen in the ordinariness of those daily routines. And yet the fruitfulness of your abiding in Jesus may be your refusal to reduce other people down to the marketable goods they can produce. And rather see them for image bearers of the one true God whom you should love. And find dignity in. God is not looking for you to change the world in your job this week. He's looking for you to abide. The vine dresser is at work in your life. Even on Tuesday in the boardroom meeting. 
or Thursday afternoon grading papers. He wants you to be faithful and fruitful right where he has placed you. He's looking for you to glorify and enjoy him and enrich the lives of others through your abiding. For all of us in the room this morning, more than likely this coming up week will look a whole lot like your last week. Sure, different things happen, but most of us kind of go through the same routines. You aren't the next big thing. In fact, the next big thing really, as Horton really is trying to drive home in this book, really the next big thing in God's plan is to bring Jesus back. That's the next big thing. And what are we to do in the ordinariness of our lives until he brings him back? Well, we are abiding in Jesus. He's renewing us every day. He's changing us more and more into the image of his son. We are being pruned. We are being shaped. We are being helped. We are being filled by the Spirit. And we are doing this and helping other people find their hope in Christ. So, dear friends, we remain in his word. And as we remain, our fruitfulness is used by God to make us more like Jesus and bless those who are in our midst. So we're not on the lookout for the next big extraordinary thing. We are not on the lookout to tell the world through social media of our next big spiritual fireworks moment. Free yourself from the invisible chains of performance-based Christianity. Your joy is not found there. Rather, remain in, abide in Jesus. Let his words bleed through your body. Let them flow through every part of your soul, every day of your week. And in this, you will receive the joy of Jesus. To say it a different way, friends, most often our abiding in Jesus is experienced in the everyday, ordinary things of life. And don't miss it. If you're sitting around waiting for the next big moment to happen, you're missing a thousand opportunities to abide in Christ, to follow the commands of Jesus, to experience the joy that is yours, and to glorify your Father in heaven. To be clear, I am not advocating for, nor is Horton, a passive, mamby-pamby, lazy Christianity. That's not at all what Jesus is advocating for here. Why? Because the Father's vine-dressing role is active. He is actively engaged in our lives. Nor am I suggesting that God does not from time to time do extraordinary things. He does. What I am saying is that if you aren't careful, you will not abide in Jesus. You will abide in your performance. You will abide in your experience. You will abide in your fears. You will abide in your shame. You will abide in your past. You will abide in all of the horizontal glories that exist in our world and fail to miss the glory and beauty of the everyday life of following Jesus. We can abide in him as his word abides in us, and the fruits are there. Thanks be to God that he cares so much for us, that he's not leaving us alone. Thanks be to God that he loves us this well. So, dear brothers and sisters, may we today renew our commitment to remain intimately attached to Jesus in order to sustain a life of fruitfulness for his glory, for our good. Let us pray together.